Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you are about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The Third Thousand Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and it is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. And if you prefer listening to the text, there is a new audio version just published this year, which you can download from Amazon, iTunes, or audible.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, stay right with me, will you, because we're going to really move. Uh, I just want to be sure you got all the fine points. When Moses got Israel out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea, what was his first task during the next few weeks? To teach them what? Actually convert them to the gospel of Jesus Christ and present them to the Lord at Mount Sinai. When he got there, he went up to the mount and he had several aspirations for these people. At last, Israel, the promised people of ancient times, was free and now able to rise to its high destiny. Can you remember three or four things that he wanted to do for them? Could you remember them? He wanted them all to have the priesthood. He wanted them to be able to come to the presence of God, and in order to do that, they had to do what? uh, Build a temple first, and then what? and uh, receive the endowment. That's part of preparing to come into the presence of God. That's what the endowment is, to prepare you to actually be introduced to the Lord. And uh, then they would have an economic and a political system that would be worthy of such a people, and they would be like the city of Enoch of ancient times, have the law of consecration. He really had aspirations. When he asked the Lord in the 19th chapter of Exodus whether or not they could please see him, what was the Lord's response? Were they ready? No. But what could they do? They could hear his voice as he conversed with Moses. And that's a great scientific experience. So where was Moses when the Ten Commandments were recited by God the first time? He was with the people as they all witnessed God speaking the commandments to him. Was this before or after he had received them on the tablets? Before before. Were the people pleased to be able to uh, stand there and hear the word of the Lord to Moses? It scared them, yeah. It was a frightening experience, so he had to go back and copy down the law by himself. Then he went up into the mount, and um, that's where we are now. Uh, Before he got up there, however, did the Lord finally let somebody see him besides Moses? How many? Seventy-three. Could you name three of them? Abihu and uh, Joshua, we find out, was among them. Any of those would be possible. The Lord says, yes, these specific ones now are worthy to come to my presence. Did they stand up close to the Lord and touch him? Was he a spirit or a a physical being? It was the spirit of whom? Who were they looking at? The spirit of Jesus Christ before he was born in the flesh. 
And um, after they had all seen him and conversed with him, it is described in the 24th chapter of Exodus what God looks like. He is a person, just as Moses had earlier seen. And God had said, you see that ye are born in the image of my son. Um, all right, then they saw that it was true. God is a man. It's not an essence. It's not just something floating out in space. He's a tre tremendous personality, a super personality. Um, and his name of the Father, the name of the Father is what? That's, uh, Elohim is his title. And what, what does the title mean? And Aman is his name, or, or man. Aman from which man is taken. In other words, when you are called man, it just doesn't mean that you are a species, especially. It means that you are of the family of the gods. Aman. Aman. You're of that very special family. And so the title, what does the title Elohim mean? Chief of the gods. Elohim. Elohim. Okay? And... Um, so God then told Moses to come up a little higher uh, into the mountain, and who was to accompany him? And what tribe Joshua belonged to? Our great ancestor? He's of Ephraim. A little quiet on that one. Um, how, long, how many days did they wait before God told them to come up the rest of the way? How many? Six. In the sixth day, why he got the word to come up. And did Joshua go up the rest of the way with him? Went up alone. So Moses was gone how many days? How, how many days was he separated from Joshua? 34. And all during that time he was being told some wonderful things. What did he get plans for? A, a portable temple or the tabernacle. Did he get the details, the measurements, and uh, all of the veils, and uh, etc.? It was very detailed, just like the Kirtland Temple. When you read the revelation on the Kirtland Temple, the Nauvoo Temple, these other temples, every window is measured. Every door is measured. Distance between windows is measured. What the ornaments will be are, are suggested. How the towers shall appear. And that's why when um, uh, the saints were told about the Salt Lake Temple, Brigham Young says now, this one is different. Uh, he said, I never see this this space here without being allowed to look at the temple. I've walked through its rooms, and he, has, he says, as many towers, so don't apostatize. Nauvoo only had one. This is going to have six. And he said, when you go back to uh, Jackson County, it will be even different. There are going to be different kinds of temples, and we have some temples with no spires, you see. But it's remarkable how detailed they are. Now, when Ezekiel got the revelation for the temple the Jews now have to build in Jerusalem, it's just as detailed. Every door, every threshold, every window, every courtyard. Right, right. Once we had the pattern uh, that the Lord had given us, then he left us as we built additional temples after we'd kind of gotten what had to be accomplished, what had to be in them. Why he did that. And let me tell you something else that's interesting. After Joseph Smith received the endowments, you see with resurrected beings actually participating in the roles, the temple roles, they, they were then, it was then left up to them to arrange the building and the presentation of the ordinances in an orderly fashion so that they could all be taken care of adequately. The actual mechanics of arranging and moving from room to room was all left up to the prophet.
And he delegated that to Brigham Young. And when Brigham Young had finished, the prophet said, that will be satisfactory. That's the way we will do it, and it will be acceptable to the Lord. And that's the way they did it in Nauvoo, but very, very briefly. Then who had charge of doing it all over again in the mountains? Brigham Young. And all of the, uh, uh, all of the ordinances and everything which had been memorized was remembered except uh, three words. And three words in the endowment were, uh, uh, were just a little off. And the Lord didn't come down with fire and strike them down. Uh, he let that thing go along and go along until and, and eventually they realized they weren't saying it quite right. So it was changed back in its proper order. didn't affect anything, but it was nice to have it right. Once they'd learned that there, those three words were off. But that's remarkable, isn't it? And in fact, as you get into church history, the more fascinating it becomes to see how the Lord has handled us. Because he hasn't taken us by the jowls, you know, and turn right, turn left, and up, down, etc. Uh, he'll, uh, he, he doesn't even do like the tank drivers do, you know, where one of them will be up uh, looking out of the port where he can see, and they've got this little fellow down there looking through a slit, and, and uh, the lieutenant touching him on his right shoulder, his left shoulder, little right, little left, watch the chuckle, there's a cliff, um, so far, uh, the Lord doesn't even do that. He'll sometimes let us go practically to the brink, you know, and so forth. Uh, we're down here to learn. We're down here to be tested. And some people say, well, I don't know whether God wants me to invest in these stocks and bonds or not. I'll wait on the Lord for that. Well, he might want to tell you whether or not to invest on them, in them. But much that we do in this life... I learned this lesson after three days of fasting and prayer. I had two options. I needed to have help, or I thought I did. And uh, finally, when the signal came, it was, make up your mind. You'll be blessed either way. What do you want to do? Well, it was kind of a toss-up, but uh, I decided, well, uh, they're bo they'd both be fine, but I'll go that way. And so I did, and I was blessed, and that was the end of the matter. But that was, it was so strong. Make up your mind. What do you want to do? <laughs> yes. Yes, well, that's his business. That's why um, some people want the Lord to intervene at their will, don't they? Now, for example, President, um, the question, wasn't it? Yeah, he wants to know. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. That's good. You're a good little conscience reminder here. Um how do, how, when does the Lord intervene, you see? Uh, uh, when do we know when he's going to intervene? As I say, that's his determination. Now, Wilford Woodruff was going along, and uh, he's speaking in tongues. Um, the saints are all tremendously impressed. Brigham Young's speaking in tongues. And uh, uh, just no problem. When they need to speak in tongues, they do. There's an interpreter. Wilford Woodruff uh, gets out in Arizona where his heart just ached to explain the gospel in the Navajo language or whichever tribe it was. And he even asked the Lord, would he please let him have the language? And the Lord wouldn't give it to him. So the Lord does intervene in these situations, and you have to wait on the Lord. This is one of the things you learn. Wait on the Lord. Joseph Smith came back to the brethren on several occasions, he records in his, his diary. He said, the brethren were so anxious to know thus and thus and thus, and I went to the Lord and received no reply. I later uh, inquired and received no reply. And then about three years later, see, out of a clear blue sky, all of a sudden, it, there it is. He said, oh, this is what I was asking about before. Uh, timing must have been off or something. 
But you, you just have to wait. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Sometimes our prayers are answered without our realizing it. Um, we ask for something, and the Lord puts it in motion. And it, there it is. Way down the trail. You ask for it, you got it. But you want it right now, you know, like tomorrow. Like this Christmas, you know. But no, you have to wait. It's uh, 15 or 20 Christmases away, but you get it. So life, we learn a lot of things in dealing with our Heavenly Father in this life. He strikes us suddenly, uh, unexpectedly, redirects us sometimes, when, uh, as he did Moses on the mount, uh, so forth, interrupted his life. But that's one of the lessons of life. Wait on the Lord. Now, he had just finished getting all of the plans for the temple. All the ordinances are explained to him. The Lord tells him how to set up a perfect society, how Israel can come into his presence, how they can become the greatest nation on the face of the earth, the richest nation, the most powerful nation, the most exemplary nation, just as Enoch did for 365 years, when nobody, but I mean nobody, challenged them. They were just the epitome of human perfection in the earth. And all of a sudden the Lord says, Moses, Israel has corrupted itself. And I think I'll just transfer them all over to the spirit world. Well, Moses has only been gone six weeks, so gee, it couldn't be that bad, surely. And uh, the Lord said, I'll tell you what, I will make thee a great nation, but not Israel. They're proven unworthy. And you have Moses actually... Uh, undertaking to plead with the Lord to spare them. And so the Lord said, all right, you go down and take a look yourself. Now, had he already told Moses what they were doing? Did he know about the molten calf before he ever started down the hill? Yeah, it's there. Yes, he told him in advance. They've made a molten calf. Well, that's bad, but I mean, why are you going to take kill them all? Why, why do you destroy them, transfer them over? So anyway, the Lord said, well, all right, you go down, you take a look. So he drops down the mountain, picks up Joshua. Does he tell him about the molten calf? No, he's just walking down, tablets in hand, you see. And he gets down there, and Joshua wants to have a little conversation. So he says, I think I hear noises. And they get down a little bit further, and he says, I, I, well, we may be under attack. After all, he's the commander-in-chief. He feels responsibility here. And he says, I think there's war. They get a little further, and what do they hear? singing yeah drums and sounds like a frolic so Najash was terribly of course terribly puzzled about it all but not Moses he just gets more solemn by the moment and then they finally come down around that last curve where the whole valley opens there before them and there are three million people and right down in the center pits right where they ordinarily offer their sacrifices and have their community meetings and everything, there they are. Naked, drunk, and just having a real old-fashioned Egyptian orgy. So Moses goes storming down, and undoubtedly it attracted some attention as he came down, <laughs> and he took these two tablets and I, I, that was one of the pictures I selected from uh, the Ten Commandments stills they let me look at, where those, he has those tablets up and he's just about to smash them. He smashed them to smithereens. They were so unworthy of this tremendous thing God had been talking about. Here they were, immoral, idolatrous, adulterous. He just smashed those tablets to smithereens. Did God ever condemn him for that? 
No, he never did. And then he grabbed hold of that molten calf and yanked it off of the pedestal it was on and pulled it onto the sacrificial fire. And the fire was still apparently quite hot and the gold melts rather readily and it just melted and ran down in streamlets off the side of the altar and into the stand. Then he beat it into the sand with his feet and then he scooped it off into the stream and he said to the Israelites, now get down and drink of the water of your abomination. And then he walked over to the entrance to the camp and he said, now who is on the Lord's side? And all of my ancestors stood there um, kicking the dust. <laughs> they hadn't participated necessarily because the ones who did were all killed, but at least they didn't step forward to immediately announce that they were valiantly on the Lord's side. But the Levites, who were of the tribe of Moses, finally came forward and, and said, we, we, we want to be on the Lord's side. And uh, Moses said, all right, I'll see if you're on the Lord's side. This whole camp, all these people, were going to go into the spirit world because of God's tremendous anger after all he'd done for you to participate, to allow this to happen. The whole camp was in jeopardy. And those people down there are directly responsible. So you sons of Levi, whether, they, whether it is a brother or whether it is a friend, those 3,000 men, and it doesn't mention the women, they seem to have gotten off scot-free or maybe they were sent to. It doesn't clearly say. But how many men were dispatched to the spirit world summarily? And most of them so drunk they probably never knew what happened, just woke up soberly in the spirit world and said, what happened? <laughs> Well, this certainly sobered the camp. Yes. Uh, yes, they were the only ones that actually were doing it. The others were spectators. The same problem we have today. Everybody stands around and watches the TV, you see. Not very many get in on the action. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they'd have all been in on it. Just a question of timidity, you see. He was really angry with them. It was in the computer, though. He knew what they would do. He was anticipating this, as a matter of fact. But uh, the, it's one thing to anticipate it, and it's another thing to have the choicest people that you can find on the face of the earth at that particular time let you down. Even when you know they're going to let you down. It really did something to the emotions of our older brother. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, it says that all of these who come through this lineage of Israel, all the 12 tribes, are people who were designated as Israel in the pre-existence, meaning they were very valiant. Then they get down here on the earth and they mess up their lives, sometimes through their own fault and sometimes others. You get a young Alma, son of the president of the church, out doing everything he can to destroy the church, to get young people involved in things they shouldn't do, etc. But he'd been so great in the pre-existence, as he himself says, I certainly didn't earn it here, but whom God foreknew, he called. And so that angel just stopped him in the way with a voice of thunder, just like he did Paul. They'd earned it in the pre-existence, the right to have another chance. Now, he didn't have to accept it. We have some who are stopped in the way that... Uh, didn't respond to the call here and only about a tenth of Israel is going to join the church and respond in our own time we're told 
and that tenth doesn't mean percentage, it means just a small portion. Uh, so the battle is a continuing one, and a lot of people who were very valiant in the pre-existence come down here and go through the humiliation of finding how frail they are. They just didn't hold up on this estate at all. They get back into the spirit world where the Lord has another rehabilitation program set up, and he brings them around again. So this is why God says, forgive 70 times 7. I've got to keep working with them. Never give up. I've brought them so far through the eons of eternity to this stage where they could be in my image. Now, if they try, encourage them, even 70 times 7. Uh, now, um, uh, after this had done, Moses immediately went up before the Lord again. Now, notice what he does. Or first he talked to Aaron. What in the world were you doing? I left you in charge of everything. Well, you were gone so long. And they were getting uh, uh, extremely restless. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt. And uh, I delayed it as long as I could. And they said, well, let's have some festivities after the order of the Egyptians. And I thought, well, I'd make them. The, they wanted a golden calf. So I made them a golden calf. But I, um, I did have the... Um, a feast day to the Lord this morning. We did have some sacrifices, but as soon as they, they sat down from the sacrifices, they rose up to play. And how they were playing is what you saw. So Moses said, well, I don't know whether God's going to kill you or not. I don't even know whether I can save your life or not. I don't know whether I can save Israel or not. I want to tell you, he is angry. And so he went back into the presence of the Lord. Didn't see him, only heard his voice. And he said... They are so precious to me, except of their regret now, if you will, else blot me out of the book of life. And that was kind of a desperate gesture on his part, but it was kind of interesting how, how the Lord kind of steadied him. What did he say in response to that? He who has sinned I will blot out of the book of life. Now, see, this is really the philosophy of God. You've heard it said that where parents sin, uh, they shall be cursed even unto the third and the fourth generation. Well, people say, um, then you mean the children are punished for the sins of their parents. It even says that in a couple of passages. But this is the real philosophy of the Lord. For example, if you have parents who have offended, there are members of the priesthood beyond the veil responsible for the assignment of children to them. And there you'll find these things running down through three or four generations until finally that family will begin to rise again. In other words, they weren't entitled to any better children than that. Or if the situation demands it, the Lord will thrust in maybe a very special person to be a blessing to that whole family to begin to bring them out. There is much engineering goes on on the other side of the veil that accommodates itself to these things. For God is just. And this is his doctrine, that when a man sins, it is he who pays the penalty and no one else. Uh, we have uh, two or three instances where a person wanted to pay for the sins of another and was not allowed to do so. Some people say, well, Jesus pays for our sins, and they, they, they do not understand the atonement. He does not pay for our sins. That would be under the law. What he does is to build up a reservoir of compassion and pity that the intelligence of the universe will overlook our sins in order to accommodate what he says are his needs. 
and they do it for his sake and their love for him has nothing to do with our sins either in quantity or quality. That would be the law. So it's a completely different principle which we don't discuss enough in church. We talk about the atonement and that it works. We never say why or how. And it's in the scripture. So we lost that doctrine in the church pretty much for quite a while. We're trying to get it back now. Bring her back as his backload. You may find a, 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 more, more of that. Uh, where people use what good offices they have. It's really the same principle upon which the atonement is based. It's like Abraham Lincoln saying to this mother who'd already lost several sons and this one uh, had gone to sleep and um, there'd been an attack and quite a few men lost and so he was condemned to die. And the mother said to President Lincoln, he's all I have. I know he should be punished, but he's all I have. For my sake, who's given, what was it, five sons? Could I have him? The president said, you surely can. He's yours. Now we have that same principle working. You've got intelligent entities communicating with each other. And when you can arouse compassion and sympathy, that's what the atonement's based on. Then you go around the law and the requirements of the law, don't you? But only a certain degree. Mercy cannot rob justice. It can placate it a little, but it can't rob it. So other factors also have to be present. There are limitations, is what I'm trying to say. Now, when, when Moses um, came back down from, the, from talking to the Lord and, and having the Lord say, well, I, I'm very angry and I, I certainly am not going to go... Um, um, before you into the promised land I'm just going to send my angels Moses found that that was very unacceptable to the people and they went into great mourning and lamentation and oh that was terrible we're going to have to try to conquer the promised land without the help of God and just have ministering angels which is Aaronic priesthood isn't it if we're not going to have the presence of God to guide us which is Melchizedek priesthood why that's that's just awful and so um as a result of that petition, they built a temporary tabernacle and, and um, the Lord actually visited Moses in the tabernacle and finally responded to these pleas and said, all right, uh, I, will, um, I will go before you. And it's interesting, Moses uh, wasn't sure he really meant it. This is a sudden shift again. Uh, he said, can I please see you? Can I please talk to you now? Can I see your glory, please? Oh, the Lord says, I, I hadn't better. I'm radiating. Believe me, I am angry. And I don't think I can contain myself. If I expose you to my glory, it'll kill you or anybody else. Isn't that interesting? You see, as we get these details, we're beginning to understand the science of heaven. And we're understanding the emotions and the vitality of godly personalities. It's very real, just as it is here. There's great power in an emotion. And you have God actually saying here, I am so indignant. I am so angry at what has happened here. There are so many good things that could have been had if these people had just been a little bit appreciative and stayed loyal to me. Now that they've betrayed me, I'm not angry at you, Moses, but I'm radiating. I won't be able to have you come into my presence at this time. He said, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll meet you on the mount and I'll show you part of me. But you can't see my face. I, I, if you see my face, you'll be dead. 
That's a very interesting conversation. Now this will tell you several things about God. That first of all, God is a God of law, and God is a, a God of cause and effect. These are things that we learn from these. God is not whimsical, as Augustine said. He isn't up there with a wand, <laughs> making things out of nothing. You know. Oh, he's, a, he's a great scientist, a great artist, a great mentality that always existed, just as your intelligence always exists. And he got way up ahead of us. But he's governed by law. It's a law that he himself made. Some people say, who came first, God or the law? Actually, all the law is is what the family of the gods have decided would be right. And they can change that at any time. We say that the law of gravitation is immutable. It is not. That's just the pattern that was given the kingdom in this particular level. They can change that completely with, with, it, uh, comp with the gravitation totally suspended. And that's what happens when a person is translated. Gravitation has no effect on him whatsoever. The forces that you and I are subject to. So we have um, Moses going up into the mount for this second experience. And now, you see, he was only down, actually, for a, few, for a day or so. Probably no more than the second day when he went back up. And the Lord says, now you hew out the tablets. As far as we can tell, God provided the first set of tablets. We don't have any indication that Moses provided them. But he provided the second set, didn't he? And he was told to make them like unto the first. And he went marching up into the mount. And Sinai is a high mountain. This 80-year-old man marching up and down that mountain. In fact, when we take you on tour, you'll ride up on camels or donkeys. It's a pretty good trip. And maybe he did too, I don't know. But anyway, he goes up and down this mountain like it was an escalator. And uh, he gets up there and goes into the presence of God. Does he get to see God's face? No, the Lord says, I'm going to pass by you and you will see me in glory but not my face. You will just see me as I pass. And he saw him from a cave and as far as we know, this is exactly the same cave that Elijah will later hide in when he comes back to tell the Lord in the ninth century, 900 B.C., uh, you see, which is, uh, what, uh, five centuries later or more, um, he'll go up to the Lord and say, I'm ready to come home now. They don't deserve a prophet. I'm reporting in. <laughs> That's what he'll do. He'll run to Sinai to die. It's a real exciting story. Next semester. And um, <laughs> so we've found... We've, we've found what, we, what is traditionally Mount Sinai. We've found a saddle up on the mount where the only life, the only spring exists, where we think Joshua remained for the period he was there. There's some small animal life there. There is a cave there, which we think could have been the cave in which Moses and Elijah both used. Um, now, the Lord says to Moses, now I'm going to give it all over to you again. I'll give you the original law, but I'm going to add all of the law of carnal commandments. What's the first law that he got? What was it called? The law of, of the gospel covenant. But now he gets that plus, and it's the plus that was a burden to the people, called the law of carnal commandments. Um, is the Ten Commandments a part of the law of the gospel covenant or something else? Gospel covenant. Permanent? Always will be there. Um, now he says, the Lord says, now I'm, it's a terrible thing I'm going to ask Israel to do because I'm going to send them into the 
promised land, and I've got people there which in the days of Abraham were offering their children for sacrifices, and I told Abraham the day would come when my cup of wrath would be overflowing and I would transfer them intact back to the spirit world. As nations, men, women, and children, I would transfer them back to the spirit world and eliminate the curse of their presence and their culture in the earth. And he said, that's the assignment Israel will now have. Unfortunately, Israel did not fulfill this properly or in the right spirit, and so they themselves became contaminated. But the Lord says that's the way I'm setting it up. So the law of carnal commandments was given, uh, and I just wanted you to remember that it included the original gospel covenant, then plus. Now the plus part was a schoolmaster. How you get up in the morning, what you do, how far you walk, you do this, you do that. This is acceptable, that is not. You've touched a dead person, all right. You're out now until you've done certain uh, oblations and other obligatory sacrifices. It was just every minute, every day, what does the law say? What, does the, what is the commandment? And it was a schoolmaster, as Paul says. Now, after Moses had received this information, now he has the two tablets, He's told to put them in the ark. Now, don't be smashing them on any cliff. Take them down and put them in the ark of the covenant, which is 40 inches long. You see, it's not very big. It had cherubim on the top, and it was called the judgment seat of God, from which the voice of God would be heard by the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and later the temple. And as Moses came down, walking down here, uh, what do the people finally, what do they do? They don't come up to greet him. Why? Yeah, he's, he's radiant. He's radiating now. He's, been, he's, he's still transfigured from his experience up there. And it was so bright and, and so difficult for them to look at him that he went in before the Lord into the temporary tabernacle that they'd built there, and when he would come out, he'd talk to the Lord, and then he'd come out and talk to the people with his face, face veiled so that they could uh, at least hear him even if they couldn't look upon him. And now the people got busy to build this tabernacle that God had talked about. All the dimensions were known, and it was a, to be a very beautiful, carefully constructed uh, a building, but not very big. And it's good for you to memorize the dimensions because they will apply to temples later on. And if you know this, the original tabernacle in the wilderness, then you will remember them for the temple. It's 15 feet wide. Now you see, that's not wide at all. Uh, that's just uh, from here over to the wall. That's about all it is. Be about from here to the wall. 15 feet. Now up to here, it's 30 feet. And this is called the holy place, and that's where the Aaronic priesthood ordinances took place. And here's the holy of holies, and that's 15 feet. So you actually have a length here of 45, total length. But if you just remember it in terms of 15, 2 times 15, 1 times 15, just remember 15, that's your key one. Now, in Solomon's temple, it'll be the same except the key is 30. And you double it for the holy place for the length, and the holy of holies is 30. It's just twice as big as this, 30 feet. Now, inside the holy of holies, there's a veil right here. When they build the temple, Solomon's temple, the veil will be put upstairs where it belongs between the terrestrial and the celestial room. But here, it will, there will be a veil across here. 
There's also veil across the door, so this is sometimes called the secondary veil. Inside here is the Ark of the Covenant. In Solomon's temple, it will also be the Ark of the Covenant, but with some very elaborate statuary called cherubim. Right here is a gold altar, solid gold altar. It's called the altar of incense, and it burns continually. And over here is the table of the priest's bread, shoe bread it's called, that we'll learn more about. And the candelabra that lighted the, the holy place is located over here, the golden candlesticks, the menorah. And um, it's a tent, it's with stakes, and it has, it's a total of three coverings. It's, um, no, it's, it's comparable to the creation room, the, um, um, the garden room, uh, the, um, the world room, Telestial is in the sense, yeah. That's where all the Aaronic priesthood ordinances were, would be performed. And the Holy of Holies was for the priests. The people would never go in there, only the priests to go in to receive direct revelation. Now, in our Salt Lake Temple, we have a Holy of Holies. Not all of them have one. But it's for the president of the church or the prophet. Any questions on that? No, it, it isn't. Uh, it, it was simply representative. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 77, the multiplicity of eyes and the multiplicity of wings frequently referred to in the scripture symbolically is to uh, suggest, in the, on the case of the eyes, uh, omniscience and all, being able to see much, and the wings representing capacity to, uh, to move rapidly, etc. They're simply symbolic. But in the Dark Ages, they, they started putting the wings on angels, etc. 77. <clears throat> now, one thing I want you to remember in this next chapter, I want you to remember the difference between the different kinds of offerings. Um, this is a little technical, but if you were, had been living in the days of Israel, believe me, you'd have had to get a lot more technical than we get today. For example, a burnt offering consists of burning what? Everything. A, um, um, a peace offering, how much do you burn? The kidney and the, and the fat from inside the animal. Uh, right. And um, then you clean out the body. You take the shoulder, certain parts of it, you take your shoulder and wave toward the tabernacle or the that's the temple, then turn that over to the priest for him and his family because he has to serve here all the time. He needs a little food occasionally. Then the family goes ahead and takes the, um, the rest of the carcass home. Why is it called a peace offering? It's a reconciliation between the individual, the Lord, and his priesthood. I mean, it's, it's something we all participate in. That's why it was establishes peace and acceptance, etc., Anyway, and what was a meat offering made of? Meal. Will you remember that? Meat, in, uh, at the time the King James translation was made, uh, meat meant meal as much as it... Uh, I mean, uh, it was just one of the words they used for meal. It's a meal offering. Yes, Mike? I thought at this point they had run out of Well, uh, and they undoubtedly had some grain either that they had brought. It's like um, Nephi when he left. They, brought the, they had these big seed sacks 
said to weigh 180 pounds that they put on camels. In any event, they started raising um, a meal as they went along. They had some. They're among uh, people who raise it also. In any way, the Lord is describing how it should be handled. All right, now I'll cover that and get over into the, the next material on Thursday.